Okay. Uh, Today I'm going to talk about um, cessation, nirvana, emptiness, in terms of there being an absence of something, a stopping of something. But to just put this into context, let's go back over what we have been looking at in the last two days. On the first day, we set up a description, a hypothetical description perhaps, of the world that Nagarjuna would have been himself embedded in, in terms of how he thought and spoke and his broad Buddhist worldview. And we looked at this as having three primary features, those of rupa, in other words, the physical world, as well as the physical body, its senses, and so on. And we would nowadays, of course, include the nervous system, the brain. And then nama, which are the primary and for a sangha and for the Buddha, necessary conditions for consciousness. And we can both understand these subjectively as the experience of impact of that physical world upon us moment to moment, as a feeling tone that the world always presents itself to us within a spectrum of agony on the one end, ecstasy on the other, It's colored emotively or hedonically. It's never just blank. And it's a world also that invariably makes sense. It's intelligible, it's organized, it's saturated already with meanings. That is sanya. The world is also one that is an arena of possibilities. And subjectively, this is experienced as how the mind is always active, moving, shifting one way or another, choosing, deciding, thinking of what we should or shouldn't do. And then also, experience is one in which we are continuously, as it were, seeking something on which to settle that attention is drawn to particular things and then we lock onto that, we focus on it, we attend to it, we think about it, we try to understand it. We might even take that attention so far that it becomes a meditative absorption, samadhi. And in dependence upon all of those functions, there then arises the possibility of consciousness. In fact, consciousness can be thought of as the whole of which these elements are the constitutive parts. In other words, to say that you know something, to say that you're aware of something, to say that you're conscious of something, requires that there is an encounter, that there is an emotive tone or feel to the experience, that it makes sense, that it engages you as something with which to act, to respond, 
and it is also presenting you with the possibility of attending to something. So form, nama, consciousness, in this model are really just an account of the world in its primary structure, one might say. But this system, which is ongoing, impermanent, contingent, rising and passing away, has somehow become blocked by the klesha. And the term that's used in Sanskrit is kleshavarana, which means um, the klesha's function as a hindrance. Um, the Tibetan word is dripa. And dripa quite explicitly means blockage. In other words, the kleshas, as it were, get in the way. They are an, an overlay, a, I mean, again, the traditional translators will say a defilement, an affliction, something that has kind of locked into this Nama Rupa Vijnana system and darkened it, got it stuck, become obsessed with self and other, set up separations, become, as it were, a ground for obsessive behavior, obsessive behavior, proliferating activity, uh, fixation. And this also, of course, is a context of fear, of fear, of anxiety. And basically, the Buddhist argument is that that whole kleshic system is actually not necessary. It feels somehow given. It feels somehow so natural. And again, we did reflect on how some of these kleshas perhaps are, are actually biologically rooted. So perhaps part of our destiny is, as it were, to, to be with these things. But we do not have to be driven by them. And in some very significant sense, the kleshic system can be brought to a stop. And that stop, that stopping, is called nirvana. And Nagarjuna would also understand and use the word uh, emptiness, when he says emptiness stops fixations. In the stopping of fixations, there is ease, there is shanti, peace, there is moksha, liberation. So in other words, emptiness, nirvana, freedom, these words Nagarjuna uses more or less interchangeably, are a way of talking about the Nama Rupa Vijnana system minus the Klesha. And since this is such an entirely unfamiliar perspective to us, it's very difficult to, as it were, gain any sense of what that would be like. Now the Buddha does venture a couple of, well I'm going to read two passages from the Pali Canon in which the Buddha himself here is speaking of what he means by nirvana. And this first passage is from the Anguttara Nikaya. The Buddha is speaking and he says, If greed, hatred and delusion are given up, a person aims neither at her own ruin 
nor the ruin of others, nor at the ruin of both, and experiences no mental pain or grief. Thus is nirvana visible in this life, immediate, inviting, attractive, and comprehensible to the wise. Now this passage, I think, shows very uh, clearly that there is something about this experience of stopping that opens up the world with a new kind of immediacy. And this immediacy is one that is, as it were, seeing things minus the fixations and the kileshas that, as it were, dull, distort, darken our normal experience. But this nirvana is also, according to the Buddha, not something that can be readily or even intelligibly described. This is, in a sense, the, the ambiguity around nirvana. And there's a passage here from the Sangyutta Nikaya, which is a, in this particular passage, is a dialogue with a monk called Radha. And when Radha asked, what is the purpose of nirvana? The Buddha replied, you have gone beyond the range of questioning, Radha, for the spiritual life is lived with nirvana as its ground, nirvana as its destination, nirvana as its final goal. So there's something here suggesting that nirvana is also a metaphor of transcendence. Nirvana in, in the blowing out, which is literally what nirvana means, the extinguishing of the, of, of the klesha, the fixations, that precipitates us into a world that we cannot really describe as long as we are within the kleshic system, as long as our consciousness is still blocked, conditioned by ignorance, egoism, craving, fear, the things we spoke of yesterday. Now all of this is very suggestive, but it doesn't take on, I think, the crucial question, which is what in fact do we understand when we speak of an absence or a stopping or a cessation? Early Buddhism, the, uh, the Abhidharma and so on, and certainly in the suttas, there's not really much thought given to what in fact is the nature of cessation, the nature of something stopping. Now, of course, this might sound like a very abstract line of thought. But about a couple of hundred years after Nagarjuna, there appeared on the Indian Buddhist scene a fellow called Dharmakirti, and I suspect most of you probably haven't, are not that familiar with Dharmakirti. Um, he's best known as the founder of not only Buddhist, but actually Indian logic and epistemology. And of course, one can almost hear people falling asleep at the mention of those <laughs> words. <laughs> and this, of course, is how he's presented. Um, and this was um, how, uh, when I was training as a monk, uh, with the Tibetan, uh, in the Tibetan tradition. We spent the first 
two or three years of our monastic training just studying Dharmakirti. And every Tibetan monk who trains in a monastery will, will have as their primary education in Buddhist philosophy, doctrine, um, epistemology and logic will follow the teachings of Dharmakirti. And Dharmakirti is, belongs to the Buddhist school called the Sautrantika, S-A-U-T-R-A-N-T-I-K-A, the Sautrantika, which means those who follow the suttas. So Dharmakirti, like Nagarjuna, sought to recover the teachings found in the early suttas rather than to develop further and to become preoccupied with the Abhidharma categories. And I, although traditionally one doesn't look at it this way, it seems to me that we can take Dharmakirti's insights as a way of actually clarifying and expanding what Nagarjuna was on about. And particularly, if we consider Dharmakirti's, I think, very profound reflections on what is the status of an absence or a cessation. <coughs> now, to give an example of this, I'm going to uh, just tell a story of something very mundane uh, that Martine and I have been involved in in the last few years, and that is the removal of a shed in our garden. <laughs> we bought a house a few years ago. It's part of the family house. And Martine's great-uncle, um, who was the original owner of that part of the property, was the village cobbler. And... Um, in the, um, in, the, in the back garden, right by our rear entrance, and also the rear entrance to Martine's grandmother and mother's part of the house, he had put up this wooden shed, probably in about 19, I suspect about 1945-46, to store some of his um, cobbling equipment. And when we first bought the place, this shed was full of cobbling equipment that actually had been bought at a knockdown price from Nazi Germany. <laughs> These huge, great metal, uh, iron, cast iron things used for um, repairing and sewing and stitching shoes. These hadn't been used for a good 50 years by the time we bought the place. And so we arranged when we purchased the property to get rid of this stuff. So it was all taken out. But since we weren't living there, then the space emptied out from the machinery was soon taken over by Martine's mother and grandmother for just another place to store stuff they didn't quite know what to do with. In other words, rubbish, really. So the place got packed with all sorts of old things. But it had a second, and perhaps for, for them a more important function, it enabled a safe place for the feral cats to breed <laughs> and to keep warm in the winter. So we had about three or four families of feral cats in that. And then they would get fed. And it was, the place was a real mess. <laughs> but 
one of the things that I particularly wanted to do was to get rid of this shed. <laughs> and uh, because it blocked the light to the house, um, it was kind of an eyesore, and also it was utterly useless. <laughs> from, from my point of view. <laughs> Not from the feral cat's point of view. So after a number of, it took a long time to organize this, but eventually we found a friend who lived in a Buddhist community in the Pyrenees, uh, a real kind of eco-Buddhist thing where they all built their own houses, lived in A-frames and stuff in the woods. And we said if he would come down and demolish our shed, he could have all the materials for his A-frame. So Paco, the guy's name, came along one day and within about 48 hours had demolished the thing, loaded it into his van and shipped it off to the Pyrenees. Now, what I found the most striking was suddenly, instead of this horrible shed, was an empty space. And for the first few days after its removal, I would go into this empty space and just revel in, in how much, in how transformed the place had now become. I had a totally different, I had a possibility of seeing vistas and views that I'd never seen before. I could look, it opened up the view right from the old ruined abbey at the top of the hill to the church at the other end of the village. And also there was an almost ecstatic sense of, of, of freedom in this opened up space. And of course it, the light was now able to come right through into the house without obstruction. Martin's mother and grandmother could see right now down to the end of the garden. And it was a wonderfully liberating feeling to be able to be in that space. But of course, in a couple of days, maybe three or four days, I no longer would get the same hit by going into this empty space as I did on day one. And of course now it's completely just part of the garden. I don't notice that absence any longer. I sometimes tell friends there used to be a shed here. <laughs> but it doesn't really mean much. <laughs> now the, the reason I've told that story is because it illustrates the nature of an absence, um, a, a cessation, a stopping, something that previously was there, and from my point of view was in the way, was removed. And that then had a transformative effect, by getting rid of this shed, had a transformative effect on how I then experienced that place, but also, of course, how quickly it reverted to being just normal. Another example recently from my own family. A year or so ago my mother had, her, had cataracts removed from her eyes. And it took her a long while before she realized she wasn't seeing very clearly. And then it was diagnosed as cataracts. And so she had them removed in a very simple operation. And for a day or two, she was going around in almost kind of Buddhistic ecstasy, <laughs> saying, wow, how I can see everything. The, the, the colors, the shapes, everything is brilliantly vivid, alive, intense. It's magnificent. It's wonderful. And this lasted a couple of days, and then it just became normal again. But again, it's an example of the effect the absence of something or the removal of something can have 
on a person's experience. But the question still remains, what in fact is an absence in, in itself? Now, Dharmakirti um, gives us the classic example of an absence in Buddhist philosophy, and this is one that's carried on right through the Madhyamakas and the Yogacharans. This is the locus classicus for understanding the status of an absence. And it's the idea of space. Not the idea of space, space. Space is understood as an absence. Now, it might appear to us that when, if we talk of the space in this room, for example, we would immediately think of the space as that which allows us to put things in the room. If there's space left in a document in a computer, it means, or we, we read that immediately to mean, oh, I can put more stuff in there. Or when we emptied out all of the old cobbling equipment from the shed, that opened up the space for putting more stuff in the shed. But that, I think, is a kind of Western idea of thinking about space. The Buddhist definition, or Dharmakirti's definition of space, is the mere lack of resistance. The mere lack of resistance. So space is not understood in the first instance as a lack of, you know, an absence that allows you to put other things in it, but it's understood more dynamically as an absence of what gets in one's way if one wishes to cross the space. So, for example, this space here lacks resistance because I can walk from one end of the room to the other. Again, it's completely obvious. But space, therefore, is simply an acknowledgement that there's nothing standing in my way. That's what qualifies a place to be called a space. It allows freedom of movement, unimpeded, unobstructed movement. No, there's no glass wall in the middle of the room. There are no trip wires. I can get from one end of the room to the other without impediment. So the absence of, uh, the absence of impediment, the absence of obstruction, the absence of resistance allows things to happen, but it does not cause things to happen. I know this sounds perhaps like a technical difference, but it's an important one. Space is that which allows things to happen. And yet that which it does this allowing is simply an absence. And as an absence, it is permanent. <laughs> <laughs> For Dharmakirti, all, um, all absences um, exist, and yet they are necessarily permanent. Now, what do we mean by this? Again, one of, perhaps, again, this uh, might sound a little surprising. 
just because something is permanent does not mean um, that it's eternal. Um, if somebody came along and put up a brick wall in the middle of this room, that would create a resistance which would thereby destroy, as it were, the space that was there before. I now cannot get across the room. Something's in my way. Or if we think of maybe an even cruder example, the absence of an elephant in this room. <laughs> if an elephant were suddenly to walk in, then the absence of the elephant would cease. Or he could do it like the, uh, the, 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 ab the ab absence of this stick in my hand has now stopped and started again and stopped and started again. So in what way does it mean to say that that is permanent? That an absence is permanent? By permanent is meant non-momentary. In other words, the absence of something does not change from moment to moment. It's not bound in, it's not knit into the sensory, fluid, changing stream of conditions. I mean, there are infinite absences in this room. But when we come into the room, we do not, as it were, immediately see those absences or hear those absences, even though they are there. There's an absence of warthogs in this room. There is an absence of anything you can, you can choose to name, provided it's not here. There's an absence of giraffes in this room. Now, although it is true to say that there are no giraffes and no warthogs and no elephants and no resistances, that is not something which impacts on the senses. We, it, it doesn't come, come, come to us as a contact to the senses. We can only know that by thinking that. So likewise, space is an abstraction. We know there's, no, we know there's space in this room not through immediate experience. We don't see it, hear it, smell it, taste it, touch it, or kind of intuit it mentally. We know it inferentially. Because I can get across the room, I can conclude conceptually, ah, there is space in this room. Or because if I look around every corner of the room very carefully and really check the place out and find no elephants, I can say there are no elephants in this room. And the absence of elephants is true. It's a truth. But it's permanent in the sense that, unlike conditioned things, it doesn't change from moment to moment. It's not involved in any kind of cause-effect process. And yet it's a condition that allows other things to happen. If there were an elephant in this room, that would probably cramp our style. It would be difficult to do this, what, what, what we're doing now. If there were an elephant in this room, it would cramp our style. <laughs> well, permanence in classic Buddhist philosophy means that which is not momentary. In other words, that does, does not exist in, does not change from moment to moment. 
the absence of warthogs does not change from moment to moment. But it could. Of course it could. But it would have to be only by our introduction of warthogs. But there's nothing. But compare it, say, to um, a seed or a plant or a body or a brain. These things are involved in their own ongoing, um, changing, momentary nature. They are the effects of previous causes, and they will be the causes of future effects, irrespective of what we think, or, or, or irrespective of our designs upon them. They are in their own nature, unfolding from previous causes and generating consequences that will have an effect in the future. They are within the stream of causality, and they do not remain the same for two consecutive moments. by their own nature. Absences are abstractions that we can infer when certain things are not around. And if we introduce those things, then they will stop. But let's go back to nirvana. See, nirvana is an absence. Nirvana is therefore permanent. But paradoxically also, if the kleshic system kicks in again, then nirvana has then stopped for that person. Now for Dharmakirti, what is ultimately real is not nirvana or emptiness because these are just abstractions. These are just ideas basically. What is real, what is ultimately real are the changing events themselves. So the ultimate truth, paramatta satya, sometimes translated as absolute truth, I translate it here as sublime truth, and you'll probably begin to understand why in a minute. These, the, 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 the classic Buddhist distinction, which we find in all the schools, even though curiously the Buddha never used these terms, ultimate truth and relative truth, Ultimate truth, conventional truth. Paramata satya, samvrati satya. This is almost this is such an intrinsic part of Buddhist discourse. But when we hear what Dharmakirti has to say about it, it comes as a bit of a surprise. Because Dharmakirti says what is ultimately true is nama, rupa and vijnana. Anything that changes is ultimately true. Anything that um, has a, f that, that, and again, everything that changes, everything that is impermanent, that is ultimately true. That's what's really real. The stopping of fixations is an absence, it's permanent, but it's not ultimately real. <coughs> of course, it makes, can make a huge difference in our lives. Like the absence of the shed is not ultimately real, it's it's actually just a conventional idea, an absence. And yet it opens up the world in a way that really makes a difference. That's why I gave this example. Take the shed away, the world changes. <coughs> There's a sense of liberation. Ditto, take the kleshas away, even for a moment. That makes a huge difference. Absences make difference. Ab absences can make a huge difference in our lives. 
but they're not things that we directly see, hear, smell, taste, touch, know. You don't know primarily the absence. You know a world now opened up by the removal of something that is very different to what it was before. One of the uh, characteristics of these impermanent, of impermanent phenomena, and in other words, ever, ever, everything we see, hear, smell, taste, touch, feel, that which we can know directly through immediate perception, through seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, intuiting, that is real. Everything that we know only by the mediation of concepts, that is only conventionally real. So cessations, absences, emptinesses, nirvanas, these are only conventionally real. We can only access them by means of ideas, reasoning, concepts. Another characteristic of the impermanent, changing, shifting, ultimately true world is that is this thing they call in Tibetan dunje nuba. It is able to create meaning. It is able to function. It has effects. You plant a seed of rice in the ground, it will grow into a sprout of rice. Um, if, you, if you leave um, a glass of water, this mug of water just standing here for a few days, a few weeks perhaps, maybe not in Taos, but <laughs> in most other places, it'll start breeding bacterial life. It'll, it'll come alive in a certain way. It'll do something. Whereas the absence of warthogs won't. The absence of warthogs um, will, 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 won't do anything until a warthog, and even when the warthog walks into the room, it just suddenly stops. And then the warthog walks out of the room, it's suddenly back again, but it doesn't do anything <coughs> in the same way that the cup of water does, <coughs> or the human body does, or the human brain does. Constantly doing something. It's, it's, it's functional. It's effective. And these things are also, another, another way Dharmakirti defines them, that these ultimately true, impermanent, functional processes of life um, are, uh, uh, they, they, they are, they do not depend for their existence on concepts or thought or language. They operate in their own natural way. They don't require us to happen. Human beings could be wiped out. Not a single person left in the world. No thinking creatures, no speaking creatures. Let's imagine the world at the time of the dinosaurs. These things existed without human beings having to somehow um, impute concept, con 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 concepts, ideas and theories on them. Now, when Dharmakirti gets to describing the nature of the insight that liberates us in Buddhism, um, what is sometimes called stream entry, which is of course also classically understood as niroda, cessation. For Dharmakirti, what the stream entrant experiences directly, it's not nirvana, it's not cessation, but it is the psychophysical complex, mind and matter, let's say, which have been, with, 
it's dagi enbe pungo in Tibetan. It's very difficult to translate. It's the skandhas, which have. It's the experience of the skandhas without there being a, any sense of an independent self operating in them. So it's to see the skandhas minus distortion, minus the feeling that there's some kind of self-contained, self-existent me there. One just experiences the body-mind pro process. The hearing, the seeing, the smelling, the tasting, the touching, the unfolding moment to moment of the continuum of events, but no longer in such a way that it all seems to revolve around me. So in other words, it's to experience the flow of conditions as they are. And only subsequently does one then recognize there's no self there anymore. And that there's no self there anymore is an absence. Something's been taken out. Something's been removed. It may also be that you no longer feel that that, that kind of neurotic constriction. There's a sense of openness, a sense of, of fixation having for the moment at least been dispelled. The, and in the dispelling of fixation, or the stopping of fixation, the stopping of the kleshic system, even momentarily, the world opens up in a totally new way. And it's the, it's, it's the, the world opening up in this way that is considered to be the first step onto the path. So, let's just recap on some of this. Nirvana, emptiness, cessation, terms that Nagarjuna uses all the time, are abstractions that make a difference, or let's say they are absences that make a qualitative difference in our lives. Just think of it this way, We're, we spend a lot of our time on this earth in search of petty nirvanas. <laughs> we spend a lot of time trying to arrange our lives so that certain things don't, are not around or don't happen. Um, a lot of worry uh, functions in this way. We, we feel ourselves thinking, for example, if only I didn't have to work with that person in the office. If only um, they hadn't built that apartment block next door with all those noisy people. If only I didn't have this pain in my lower back. If only this were not happening. If only, only I that. If only I. If only I didn't have a shed in my back garden. <laughs> so we have a. We we long very often for things to stop, things that irritate us, things that annoy us, things that get in our way, things that seem to make our life troublesome. We then construct, and we even not only construct fantasies of their removal, we actually set about um, strategies, like inviting Paco to come down and take the shed away, that will actually get rid of these things. And yet, often, what we notice here, as is the nature of so much craving, is that we invest, or we project into that sense of absence, if only that were not there, if only that person was not employed by this firm. 
And let's say one day it happens that that person takes a job somewhere else. We go into the office, that person is not there. And there might, for the first morning or two, be a wonderful sense of, wow, we can all breathe freely now. But of course, it soon returns to another kind of normality. But on often we're rather disappointed when we get rid of something that's bothering us. Once the initial thrill is gone, we actually realize it wasn't such a big deal after all. And perversely, sometimes we, act, we do get rid of something that's been bothering us for a long time, and then we begin to miss it. <laughs> Life seems suddenly empty without that little edge of frustration or annoyance to sort of keep us alive. But although these, are, these absences are obviously of a very different order to nirvana, ontologically and in terms of what they are, i.e. absences, they're exactly the same. It's the same kind of phenomenon. It's the absence of something. It's the removal of something. And yet we're often disappointed or not really fulfilled when we achieve these minor nirvanas because we, they don't actually make the kind of difference we had hoped they would. The Buddhist claim is that by removing the kleshic system, ignorance, craving, delusion, all these kind of things, that will make a qualitative difference to how we experience our lives. That really will make a difference. Now, of course, the, 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 you know, the problem is that how do we actually achieve that removal? How do we get rid of these things? The basic practice of mindfulness is effectively the practice of paying attention to those features of reality that we tend to ignore, we don't pay attention to. In other words, noticing that things change, that we're involved in a radical system of changing, that the world, our experience of it, the body, the mind, phenomena are endlessly ephemeral, coming and going continuously, rapidly. By noticing that this world is not a place whereby simply organizing things in a different way, we would find some kind of lasting well-being. This is the other fantasy we have. It may be unspoken, but the sense that we're always just on the verge of getting it right. And yet, we spend to seem to spend our whole lives, our whole life, being on the verge of just being short of getting our situation just right. And the other thing is this obsession with the fact that everything revolves around me. This exaggerated sense of self and by consequence the exaggerated sense of the independence of the other, of other things, other people. If we conscientiously, almost um, insistently, start to notice that everything changes, that it's not reliable, it's not dependable, and that it is not revolving around me, when we we, we, once, once we, as it were, train ourselves to experience things in that way, that will get to a point where the whole justification for the ignorance, craving, delusion, so forth, that system, will momentarily be suspended and there will be a gap. At least this is the, the way it's understood. 
In other words, that system will for a moment stop. And it's when that system stops, when that, the clashes and the fixations are suspended, and again, the emphasis has to be on the word suspended, then the world opens up in a new way. Now, this we would call perhaps um, a mystical experience. Um, it's an experience certainly of the world in a way that heretofore we had not noticed it because we've been enthralled to the, the, uh, the, this kleshic system, the, fixa the, the fixations. But, and again, and then this is something that all the traditions actually agree on for once. Whether it's Theravada, whether it's Zen, whether it's in the Tibetan schools, that this moment of stopping can be very, very brief. Just a few, a few mind moments it can be a, a complete flash. It might last a few seconds, a few minutes. Might even drag on for an hour or so. But the force of habit is such. The force of our beginningless time conditioning is such that that suspension will fade and the old habits will kick back again. But the difference now is that we know that it doesn't have to be that. We know now that it does not have to be like this. It, we, we've, we've actually had the experience of the world without those obsessive fixations. We now know that. And it's that knowing that is equivalent to the first step in the Eightfold Path, right vision, right seeing, right view, samaditi. Um, and again, I, I think the word right is wrong. <laughs> the word summer doesn't mean right, and it certainly doesn't mean right in a kind of moralistic sense. Summer means complete or whole. Um, like we say, Sama Sambuddha, we don't translate that as rightly enlightened. We say fully enlightened, completely enlightened. Samaditi is fully seeing, seeing fully, seeing completely, seeing authentically perhaps. And that authentic vision is for Dharmakirti seeing the world minus all of the stuff that gets in the way. And that then is the beginning of the path. This is where the path begins. Until that moment, until that moment of stopping, you're not actually on the path. You're trying to find it. You, in a loose sense, yes, we're, we're engaged on a spiritual path, but in terms, I mean, this is called the, um, uh, you know, it's called achieving the path. Achieving the path. So, paradoxically, perhaps, or at least in contrast to what we often think, but let's think again of the word path. A path um, is also an absence. It's also a cessation. It's also um, a, an absence of impediment. A path is a space, as Dharmakirti describes it. But again, when we, we use this word path so often, and we tend to think of it positivistically. So in other words, if I, if I say, imagine a path running across the hills, you will probably visualize a green expanse of hills, and imposed upon that green expanse will be a windy brown line. And we think of a path, therefore, as something superimposed on a landscape. But if we were to actually go on our hands and knees and try to find that path, 
what we would actually discover is the path is, is just a way of talking about the gap, the human-sized gap between the grasses or the trees or the rocks or the boulders. A path is that which enables the freedom to move. In other words, when we're on a path, what we experience is this wonderful feeling of being able to get into our stride because in a path there is an absence of resistance, an absence of blockage, an absence of anything in our way. There's a freedom to move. So in a way the, the essential nature of a path is that of an absence of a removal of something, of something not being there. And we know what it's like when we're walking along a path and suddenly we come across a tree that's fallen across <coughs> it. Immediately we are stopped in our tracks, we have to spend a lot of time sometimes clambering over this thing. And we experience at that moment the, you know, what, you know, what the path has actually been like. It's been enabling this freedom of movement. Nagarjuna in uh, in the, in the poem entitled Awakening, uh, says um, emptiness is emptiness, how does it go? Emptiness is contingency. Let's read it out. Uh, no, sorry. Contingency is emptiness, which contingently configured is the middle way. We can leave out this contingently configured. We can talk about that later. But contingency is emptiness which is the middle way. Emptiness is the middle way. When I first saw this, I thought this was probably some rhetorical device. You know, my teachings on emptiness, that's the real middle way. But if you think about it, and again, Tsongkhapa's commentary brings this out as well, um, the middle way is, again, an absence. It's the absence of what obstructs movement. And emptiness, therefore, like a path, is that which enables us to move freely through the world. It opens up the world as an even greater arena of possibilities. And to live in the world without fixations, or at least with less fixations, has consequences not just in our spiritual life, in, our, in some wonderful experience we had once, but it actually opens up our way of being in the world. And that way of being in the world is primarily, in terms of experience, a heightened appreciation of the liberating quality of contingent existence. In other words, the, the fact that things are continuously coming and going, arising out of a matrix of circumstances and causes and conditions, <coughs> are not inhibited in their essence by notions of fixity, fixation, and all the stuff that we're into. That, as it were, is the world understood from the perspective of freedom. And Nagarjuna and, um, and other Mahayana philosophers later recognize that the contingent world in itself is naturally at ease. Nagarjuna says, says, says this two or three, three times. He says, everything contingent 
is naturally at ease. And this is an idea that then becomes a fairly, fairly basic Mahayana idea, the idea of natural nirvana, that the natural world is already nirvanic, it's already unimpeded, that there is a glimpse of liberation simply in observing how the natural world unfolds. So in a, in a way, nirvana is a return to the effortless unfolding of the processes of life. It's not in any way a, a negation of that. It's a negation of the fixations, the obsessions, the fears, the desires, the hatreds, that as it were, are a series of ever-darkening veils that prevent us from seeing that. And I think, therefore, that we could understand Nagarjuna's verses, if we, if we think of what he's doing in the light of what I've just been saying, that, that each poem, each set of verses, is an attempt to articulate to put into words the experience of life minus fixations. The world not occluded by our desires, by our fears, by our demands. And that is, to me at least, what comes through these verses and why, again, I've chosen to try to find a poetic voice for that because I feel that it's in poetry not, not certainly not just Buddhist poetry. In fact, such poetry often is a little, little bit too formalistic for my taste. But in any, in any great poetic utterance from whatever tradition, what often moves us is this sense of the world being presented to us, being suggested, that is somehow, that somehow transcends or is beyond our habitual, rather um, constrictive view of things. That when we look out on the world, it doesn't excite us, but it's just another day, another day to get through. And yet what often happens in meditation, particularly um, in, in mindfulness and awareness meditation, is that after a few days of doing it, the world begins to open up, that the colors become more intense, that we become more sensitized to this extraordinary um, sensual flux of things, the play of light, the, the shifting of sounds, the, the, the polyphony of birdsong that's all around us. That we become heightened, we have a heightened awareness of the simple things that we experience every day, but don't really notice. So again, I don't want to make this nirvana thing as, as, as sort of a real black and white. You know, we're totally deluded, then one, one day the delusion stops and we go, wow, and then it closes, closes up again. But it's also a gradual, progressive, coming closer to that sense of things. And again, this is something we can test out. I mean, it may be that sitting in meditation, looking at the world in this way, doesn't really work for us. So don't do it. Find some other approach. But I suspect many, many of us here, and certainly myself, have found that that kind of discipline of paying attention in this way does make a difference. 
may not be nirvana every moment, but it's, I think that you do get this expression, it inclines towards nirvana. It inclines towards this stopping. And when we speak of letting go, again another jargon term, the, the more that we see the world in this way, the more we naturally begin to release our hold on the tight fixation, it's all, it's all, it's all happening to me. Or trying to sort of secure things, trying always to tighten things, trying to find something that will gratify a desire or ward off a fear. So when we read these uh, verses, I would hope, and if it doesn't do this, then I've clearly failed in my translation, to somehow suggest that world, the world opened up by the emptying of fixation. So we'll stop here, and um, we'll have a break until quarter past 11, it's now 11 o'clock, and then we'll return for um, discussion. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.